0: Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. One more time. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Oh, Father, help us understand. Because, Father, I I read that and it, it sends a shiver up my spine. I don't think there's a person here this morning... Who wants to be found guilty of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. So help us understand what this is about. In fact, would you, Lord, turn our eyes now to Jesus as we seek to understand what this, this ritual, this, this ordinance, this thing we call communion is about and and why we do it and really what the heart is behind it. Lord, you do all things well. You do all things with purpose. And I ask that You will help us to see that and maybe enter into a more profound relationship with You because of what You're about to show us. Spirit of the living God, teach us Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ loved a good meal. Loved dinner time, supper time, to eat with his family, with his friends. We see it evidenced time and time again throughout the Gospels, Jesus loved to eat. That is a deeply theological statement and absolutely true. And I've mentioned this in passing a couple of times recently. He just loved to eat. I mean, look at all the meals that Jesus takes in the Gospels. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus is always eating with someone. They're always breaking bread, always enjoying a meal. He gets—he actually gets accused of being called a drunkard and a glutton. John the Baptist was accused of, of not eating anything but locusts and honey, uh, of fasting, of being kind of a wild man in the, in the desert. And Jesus comes along and they call him a drunkard and a glutton. I think because he just enjoyed eating, enjoyed being with people in that environment. And in that way, I totally relate. I love to eat. I love a good dinner. Especially with family and friends. You know, as a kid growing up, most of our meals were taken at the kitchen table. The more casual place, we'd all kind of gather around there. My mom, my dad, my, my brother and I. And most often, that's where we ate together. We rarely went into the formal dining room. But I always knew the formal dining room was coming. Because the table began to be set. And whenever the centerpiece was put out, even before I was old enough to get the calendar and to know what time of year it was and what was about to take place, I knew I could just look at the centerpiece. And if there were pilgrims on it, turkey's coming. Thanksgiving. If there were candy canes or maybe a little sleigh or some red and green candles, I knew Christmas was in the air. And my mom would decorate out that table and and always there was a centerpiece. If if there were spring flowers, you know, I knew that this was probably going to be an Easter meal or a springtime meal of some kind. And it was rare, but when we had those occasions, it was always very, very special. The first century church, indeed, the church for the last 2,000 years, has a centerpiece. In the first century church, they knew it and they knew it well. Well, It bore a a number of descriptions in the Bible. Not even necessarily named, it's just what they were told to do and what they continued to do. Matthew 26, verse 26 tells us, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and after a blessing, He broke it, He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup, and note this, given thanks... When Jesus had given thanks, He gave it to them and He said, Drink from it, all of you. Given thanks. In the Greek, the word thanks is eucharisteo. Does it sound familiar? It's where we get the word Eucharist. It's often used in the Catholic Church for the Catholic Mass, but the Eucharist is literally the thanksgiving. That's what Eucharist means. It is a good word. You can call taking communion together the Eucharist. It works. It's a giving of thanks. And Jesus did that on that night of His betrayal at the Last Supper. He Eucharisteoed. He gave thanks. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Paul writes, "...is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ." Well, there's another word that describes what we do. Sharing. Koinonia. It's where we draw out our word communion. When we take communion together, and it's, it's more of a common, casual word, especially in the evangelical church, when we take communion together, it is koinonia, it is fellowship, it's sharing, and that is very much at the heart of the message this morning. We'll come back to it. The Apostle Paul also referred to it as the Lord's Supper, verse 20 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Back in chapter 10, verse 21, he calls it the table of the Lord. And there are various other references to it and, and names for it given throughout the years, but the centerpiece, understand, the centerpiece of the table of the Lord, indeed the very focal point of worship in the early church, was communion. The body and blood of Jesus Christ. That is why we meet. That is the singular most important reason why as a fellowship we gather as we do weekly. It's not tradition. I hope you don't go to church on Sunday because, well, that's what we do. We get up, we go to church on Sunday. Monday we get up and we do work and school and off we go. But church is that Sunday thing. We gather, not for worship, although worship happens. Not for prayer, although prayer is so much at the heart of our conversation with God. Not for teaching of the Word, although that's vital. We gather, we assemble for the body and blood of Jesus. That is the heart of what we do. I've been asked many times, why at the bridge do you take communion every single week? You know, other churches don't. Why do you do it? Because it's the very heart of the message of the Gospel. It proclaims even sometimes what we do not. It states and restates and states again what is happening here and what has happened in our lives that makes us want to claim being Christians. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the very beginning, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The breaking of bread and to prayer. And yes, the breaking of bread is referring to communion. I know people have tried to, you know, water that down and make it not that big a deal. Say, ah, no, the breaking of bread was just, they just ate in each other's homes. They just had a meal together every now and then. Well, yeah, they did that. But when you see the phrase breaking of bread in the scriptures, make no mistake, it is talking about the remembrance of the body of Christ. And whether they did that before they took lunch together, Or they did that as a special evening service or or a morning on a Sunday. The first day of the week as we see so often in the New Testament scriptures. Breaking bread was more than just making a sandwich. Breaking bread was the memorial of Jesus. And the first century church did it faithfully and consistently. The breaking of bread is yet another simile for the Lord's table. I remember the very first meeting that we had as the Bridge Christian Fellowship, October the 8th, 2003. It was a Wednesday night. We gathered together, and yeah, we sang songs. And we opened up the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's still online. You can listen to the very first teaching. But that's not why we gathered, and that's not why we met. We took communion together on that Wednesday night. And in that moment began something that has continued, not begun with us, obviously it began 2,000 years ago, but we started on that Wednesday, we took it every single Wednesday night through that first fall of 2003, and then in the winter time, January 11th, 2004, the first Sunday morning in a very cold and hay-filled barn, and we took communion, and we have taken it every week since and at other times as well, because it's so vitally important to who we are and what we are about, The Catholic Mass still tends to center on the Eucharist. Although over the years that's changed a bit. Some Catholic churches will will do it, they'll do it weekly. Some will do it where you can drink the wine uh, on maybe four occasions, special occasions during the year. The rest of the time the priest just drinks it. Others will allow the people to drink the wine as well. It's, It's interesting that the Eucharist. That only the priest would drink the wine. That was tradition for a long time, and is still tradition in many Catholic churches today. The priest only drinks the wine. I wonder if it had to do with um, what Father Alexander Lucci Smith. I know all of you are well read with Father Smith. He calls out. He calls this the curse of the Catholic clergy. What's that? Alcoholism the number one problem among priests may not be what you think. It's alcoholism. Some would draw that back because the priest alone would drink the wine. Well, why would the priest alone drink the wine? I'll tell you that later. But if you want to read up on this, that's from an article written by uh, Father Alexander Lucci Smith called, Why Are So Many Priests Alcoholics? So that coming from a, a priest himself. But here's the thing. And I point that out, that only the priest would drink the wine. He had to be so careful. Even now, when the wine is shared in the Catholic Mass, there's a a towel, and they wipe very carefully, and they make sure everybody takes it very carefully. It's extremely methodical and reverent and careful. Why? You don't want to spill the blood of Jesus. We have a different problem in the Protestant and Evangelical Church. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. How could one become drunk on something that has become so watered down? The the taking of communion, the sharing of communion. It seems to me that it's no longer at the center of the table of the Lord. Now it's been taken and stowed at the top of the pantry and only brought out for holidays and special occasions. Now, I'm not meaning to sit in judgment of all the church. I just think we have missed something when we take that which is absolutely central to our fellowship, to our worship of God, and we put it away and only bring it out on occasion. I know some say, well, that's to make it special. I can tell you honestly, it is absolutely special to me every single time we take it. And I want to talk about that with you. Uh, The church of Corinth was doing well with that. They were remembering it. They were taking it consistently. It was part of the ordinances being kept by Corinth. Verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So they were holding on to the traditions, the, the paradosis. That's the word in the Greek, paradosis. It means ordinances. No doubt, Paul gave them baptism, talked about baptism with them. As an ordinance of the church, someone gives their life to the Lord, you want to make sure they get baptized as an outward expression of that. And when you gather together, you are to break bread, and you are to pass around the wine, the bread and the wine, to remember Jesus just as Jesus, what did Paul say? Just as He received from the Lord. Which is interesting. That's direct teaching from Jesus to Paul to the church at Corinth. That they were to do this, to keep these ordinances. And they did. It's been nearly five years. Paul's in Ephesus. He's writing back to Corinth. Five years or so since he had planted that church. And they're still keeping communion. They are faithful with it. They are consistent with it. It's going on. And Paul praises that. He says, this is good. I'm proud of you. You've continued to keep these things. Problem is... When the church at Corinth met at the table of the Lord, it seems to have become more of a food fight than an actual sharing in the body and blood of Jesus. Look at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The severe language that now follows is very revealing. It's interesting, Wednesday night we read the first half of the chapter, we studied it, we looked at it. Paul says if a woman is going to pray or prophesy in the assembly, she needs to do so with her head covered. Of course, we don't do that now. Why not? It is very clearly a cultural issue, a customary issue. Paul even uses the word custom. It's a custom. And if you want to understand that better and you weren't here Wednesday, you might want to go back and listen to the teaching on it because we went through that verse by verse to try and understand okay the role of men and the role of women and what's this head covering thing for and and what about the headship of a man over a woman and and how does that fit and what was Paul talking about but you need to understand this much the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul is very low key he's like I know this is going on. I know some of you women in your freedom in Christ, you're taking off the head covering. You're saying, hallelujah, we don't have to cover ourselves up in public anymore. And Paul says, that's causing a problem because you will look like prostitutes. And in Corinthian culture, indeed, they did. Any woman, believer or not, walking down the street without their head covered was saying, I'm open for business. So Paul deals with that, but he deals with it in very calm language. If you were reading it in the Greek, if we could all do that, we would see he's not on the attack. He's not upset with them. He's just saying, look, there's there's an appropriate way to do this. There's propriety in worship. And he lays that out. But when he gets to verse 17, he changes mood. Paul gets almost incensed. The language is severe. It's strong. Because far more important to Paul than head coverings for women is the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is at the very heart of the gospel and that is the body and the blood of Jesus. And I can tell you this much, mess with communion and you upset Paul deeply. Because for Paul this was, this was everything. Would you joke around about a friend who had been killed in a car accident? Would you make light of it? Would you, would you change the way you remembered it and, and, and make it a selfish, irreverent thing? Of course not. And Paul is saying, you are doing something to my Jesus and I, and I can't tolerate it. Now, I'm speaking my own words here, but I'm trying to give you a sense of the language and where Paul goes and how serious he gets and severe as now he moves from women in head coverings into communion And it is one of the most important and most severe things that Paul deals with, I believe, in any of his letters. This is as personal as it gets. Why? I mean, I understand the personal feelings of Paul, but why is it so important, this communion, this Lord's Supper thing? Three reasons it's all about what Jesus did, it is all about what Jesus is doing. And it's all about what He is about to do. Don't forget that. We're going to move through that this morning. What He did, what He's doing, what He is about to do. Three things to note, and not those three things. That's the overarching idea. But three things if you want to jot down and and follow along with this. Number one, the table in turmoil. We begin with the table in turmoil. Verse 18. Paul says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. That is one of the weirdest things that Paul says. In fact, I believe it's in a book I have upstairs called The Hard Sayings of Paul. There must be factions? It sounds like Paul's saying this is a good thing. Almost like division in a church, factions, splits, almost like there's a divine necessity behind it. Like it's supposed to be that way. Listen, in a way there is. What, divisions in churches? Oh, Rick, I I thought God hated division. And indeed He does. Proverbs 6, go read it. talks about seven things that the Lord despises. uh, Six things He despises. Seven that He hates. And number seven, the thing He hates the most, is a brother who causes dissension or division. But here Paul says, there must be factions among you so that those who are approved can be evident among you. There must be. Why? Why? Paul, understand, is always looking at the very end of the ages. He's always got his eyes in that place. Gordon Fee in his excellent commentary writes, Paul probably sees their present divisions there in Corinth as part of the divine testing sifting process already at work in their midst. Such divisions are not a good thing, but they are an inevitable part of the eschaton, that is, the final judgment. Paul sees what Jesus very clearly stated. What's that? That there would be division even in the church, and it is to be expected. Not praise, not honor, it's not that we want it to happen, but it will happen, and Jesus made that clear. Three parables that He told. I won't do all three this morning. Matthew 13, he tells three parables. The parable of the tares in the wheat. The parable of the birds in the branches. And the parable of the leaven in the dough. And in the case of all three, he explains that as the kingdom of God develops, good and bad will be all mixed together until the end. It has to be that way. The parable of the wheat and tares. Jesus says uh, a man plants wheat in in his field. And he goes away, and then his enemy comes into the field at night and plants tares. What are tares? They're weeds. Tares look like wheat, but they have no grain. As it grows together, you almost can't tell one from the other until it's time for the grain to sprout and get that little grainy head on it that wheat gets. Tares don't get any fruit. And so someone plants this. An evil person does this to this guy. And all of his servants come to him. They say, "What do we do? And he's planted weeds among the wheat." Should we tear it all out? Tear out the weeds? And the master says, No, no, because you'll rip up the wheat. Leave it all. Let it grow up together. And then in the end, when we're ready to harvest and thresh, then we will divide it out. Listen to what Jesus says in describing the kingdom of God. He says, The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom. All stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The tares. As for the wheat, he says, verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Paul is not surprised at all by what he's hearing at Corinth. Divisions? I expect it, Paul says. Because it's showing who is approved and who is disapproved. And I expect that. But, even though Paul expects it, he doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't stand for it. We as a church do not stand for division. For dissension. For backbiting and bitterness. It's not okay. Will it happen? Yes, it will. And maybe more people would be less offended by Christianity and the church if they simply understood that. There's going to be division. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be bitterness. Why? Because we're sinners. But we don't have to tolerate it. We don't have to put up with it. And so Paul goes on. He says in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the Church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Not okay, Paul says. So what was going on? What was actually taking place? I mean, what was gluttony the issue? They were just a bunch of people were just chowing down and overdoing and shouldn't have been? Was it drunkenness? I mean, that's hard to imagine, but were people showing up for the Lord's table and getting drunk on the wine? It's crazy. I think it was worse. Far worse than overeating or overdrinking. The issue is selfishness and arrogance. In fact, those two, selfishness and arrogance, sat at both ends of the head of the table of the Lord. It was an absolute... Their behavior was a repudiation of koinonia. A discounting of of community, of fellowship. They were denying the table of the Lord because they were denying their brothers and sisters a seat at the table. Verse 22, he says, Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? It's thought among commentary writers that perhaps what was going on... it was either when they met on the first day of the week or even in their homes and the rich would gather together and of course the poor of the congregation they would show up as well but they if you didn't bring your own food you didn't eat so those who brought their food who had rich potluck meals they would gather and feast and dine and the poor would be kind of out in the courtyard waiting to see if anything was left over Oftentimes, left without anything to eat at all Others just think when they gathered on the first day of the week, the rich were providing the bread and the wine, and the poor weren't getting any. Whatever the case, they were making a complete mess. You see, at the foot of the cross, you know what's marvelous about when we take communion together? We are all the same. We are all the same. There is no difference, male or female. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, wealthy or poor. There is no difference when we all take the same bread and the same wine. We're one people. All alike in that moment. I love that about communion. Corinth had gotten into this class warfare in the church. The haves and the have-nots. The 1% versus the 99% as our, as our culture loves to clamor about today. By the way, note that Paul doesn't have a problem with them eating and drinking at home. He doesn't call out those who have more and those who have less. He just says, look, you're not treating each other right. You're not dealing with each other right. And in their treatment of each other, they were denying everything for which the the Lord's table stood. Paul's not promoting socialism, don't get me wrong. He's he's not a Bernie, okay? (laughs) He even says, again, if you have it, eat it at home. But when you come together, you come together in communion. You know he says that five times. From verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Five times Paul uses the phrase, come together. I think that's where John Lennon got it. I'm not sure. Come together. Meet together, he says. Five different times. Go back and look at verse uh, 16 in chapter 10. One chapter back. Paul is already starting to rev up to this conversation about communion, already about to share this. And he says in verse 16, "...is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the body of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." He's very clear about this. Sharing, that word sharing, is koinonia, is communion. Is not the the blood, the, the wine which we drink, is that not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we eat a koinonia in the body of Christ, a sharing, a community? And so what we do together in here, at a minimum every first day of the week, at least here at the bridge, is about togetherness before the Lord togetherness before the Lord oftentimes we have this American mentality which is independence and individualism that's that's American thinking right? we are big on independence so what do we have a tendency to do when it's time to take communion together focus in ignore everything around us think about Jesus that's a good thing pray, dial down Get in that space with the Lord. And sometimes we can forget the whole communion aspect that we are communing, koinonia, together. That this is a together process. We do it as a family and it's part of why Jesus did it in the first place. Look at what Jesus did. Back in chapter 11, Paul says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, and you might underline that, It's not just a point of reference with Paul. It's a stunning point that on the very night of his betrayal, Jesus pursued unity among His brothers, including Judas. He tried to draw them all one more time together. In fact, you remember the scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, the one who betrays Me is the one to whom I will give the morsel after I dip it? And He dips the morsel... And He hands it to Judas. And it was a tradition in the Passover meal that you gave to your closest friend. In that last moment, right before the betrayal, Jesus is saying to Judas, Come on, man. We're friends. Aren't we? Aren't we? Isn't that what our relationship is? Will you be my friend? Will you stand with me? I think to that very moment, Jesus is giving Judas opportunity to change direction. And you know He didn't. But at that meal, on the night of his betrayal, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He passes around the cup, one cup, not a bunch of tiny little cups we do for, you know, cleanliness, because you guys are sick. <laughs> One cup. They all drank from the same wine. One loaf of bread, broken and passed around. They all shared from the same bread. That they might have a unity, a oneness. That was Jesus' point. And what does he say? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. Paul goes right to the heart of that story, reminding them of that Thursday night. Why would he do that? Because when the table is in turmoil, number two, we need the Redeemer in remembrance. The Redeemer in remembrance. To remember Jesus. In fact, this is a great standard for all of us. If you get in a bitter fight or battle with somebody, if you are in a contentious relationship with another brother or sister in Christ, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Because the moment you remember Jesus, suddenly that contention starts to fade. Suddenly you realize, wow, do I have any right to even be angry with this person? When I think about what Jesus did for me, remember Jesus. So at Corinth, the table is in complete turmoil. And Paul says, remember. As often as you do this, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Psalm 111 verse 4 says, He made His wonders to be remembered. He made his wonders to be remembered, and nothing is more wonderful, nothing is more memorable than what Jesus did on the cross. What he did to satisfy the terms of the new covenant, he called it the new covenant in my blood. Why? What are the terms? What's that all about? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, or a will, like a last will and testament, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made the covenant, or the will, or the testament. I had one person come up to me after first service. Okay, it was Spencer, uh, if you see him around here. (laughs) Spencer Headley's wandering around here. He's home visiting. He'll be at the picnic. So another reason to go. Or not. (laughs) Kidding. Love Spencer. He came up afterwards. He goes, Rick, will you explain what Jesus meant by the new covenant? It's very simple. The old covenant was the Mosaic covenant. It was a covenant that was signed by blood, but it was conditional. The only conditional covenant that God ever gave Israel was the law. If you keep the law, the condition, then you can stay in the land and I will bless you. If you break my law, God said, to Israel, then I'm going to kick you out of the land. And that's exactly what happened. How was the first covenant sealed? The old covenant. It was sealed by blood, but it was the blood of animals. Jesus comes along and says, this wine, this cup of redemption, it is a picture of my blood which will seal my new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. What is the new covenant? Believe in me and you have eternal life. And guess what? It is absolutely unconditional. You don't get eternal life because you keep a certain set of rules. You don't get eternity because you maintain the law. Jesus says, I will die and bleed out for you. You believe that, I will save you. That's the new covenant. It's the gospel. That Jesus died, He resurrected, and now He invites you to eternal life with Him. That's the gospel, the new covenant in His blood. And He says, now get this, do this in remembrance of Me. Now I grew up in a church that took communion every Sunday. I confess a bit legalistically, I think, because many people showed up and took it because it was kind of like their sin cover for the week. We would have tables. I remember this in many different churches that I visited as a kid growing up. The tables would have carved into the front of them, in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And that was drilled into me growing up. And so as a kid, I remember very young, squinting my eyes. During communion and trying to remember something I had never seen. How do you remember the cross? I I could think about, I could read a passage in one of the Gospels about Jesus' crucifixion and and get kind of a middle image, but I wasn't there. I didn't see it. And it was frustrating for me. Because I have a a tendency to be a little bit attention deficit. Just a tad. (laughs) You know, look, squirrel! I mean, that's just me. And so I would sit there and I'd close my eyes and think, remember Jesus, remember Jesus. I don't even know what He looks like, but I'm going to remember Him. I don't know how the cross looked. then, of course, movies came out, right? Jesus of Nazareth and The Passion of the Christ and uh, the Jesus movie, Son of God. Different movies where you could see uh, an actor's representation of Jesus being crucified, so maybe you can draw off those pictures a little bit, but it's still not Him. Lord, how do we do this in remembrance of You? How do You remember something You never saw? Listen. None of the apostles sitting there at that time, when Jesus passed the bread and passed the wine, none of them had seen Him crucified. That didn't happen until the next morning. He handed them bread so said, Pass this around. Do this in remembrance of me. So, what did they have to remember of Jesus? Walking on the water, pulling Peter out by his coattails when he sunk, healing the lame, ministering to women with a kindness no rabbi ever showed a woman, loving people, caring for the apostles. Standing on truth while promoting grace? Remember me. That night, what did they remember? Everything Jesus was to them. Now I guarantee you, the next time they took communion together, they not only remembered all that He was to them, they remembered all that He had done for them. And yes, they did remember the cross. But I think this whole remembrance issue is is bigger. Jesus is bigger than the cross. The cross is huge. The cross is the centerpiece of the table. But the table is the Lord's table. The whole thing belongs to Jesus. At the center we have a memory of what He did for us at Calvary. But it's also not just about what Jesus did. It's about what He's doing. When you take communion, do you pause and think about what Jesus did for you, in you, through you, this week? This year? Do you ever pause during the Lord's Supper and think about that moment when He first got a hold of your heart. Remember Me, He says. It's much bigger than a moment. It's a relationship. Remember Me. Do this in remembrance of Me. Remember who I am. Remember, yes, what I've done for you, how I lived, why I came in the first place, and what I'm doing right now. Remember. Because on that dark night... Of the worst betrayal in human history, you know what Jesus did? He gave himself to his, to his followers around the table. Here, eat this, this, this bread, it's my body. Drink this blood, this, this, this wine, it's my blood. Eat, feast, consume me. Take me in. Take me into yourselves, Jesus said. And think about recently we talked about how a meal in the Middle East was very intimate. Because not only spiritually and emotionally, but even biologically, genetically it was thought by some that genetics changed and we became similar when we ate together. Because if you break off a piece of the same bread, and one piece goes in one person's mouth, and another piece goes in another person's mouth, now you've both taken this nutrition, this nourishment, into yourself. Guess what? There is sameness in both of you. So, the Middle East people saw this as very intimate. Jesus says, this is me. This is me. Here I am. Take me in. Take me in. Now, we've made up some really interesting things having to do with that over the years. 1215 A.D. The Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation was first introduced. Note that. For 1215 years, it didn't exist as a church doctrine. It was not taught by Jesus. It was introduced by the Pope at that time. Transubstantiation. What does that mean? It's the concept that when you take that piece of bread and chew it up and swallow it, as it's going down, it becomes flesh. It actually turns into The flesh of Jesus, supernaturally. The wine, the reason why I told you before that the priests in many Catholic churches, even today, only the priest drinks the wine, or the people can drink it only on special occasions, is because it's actual blood, or or they feel like, they sense that that wine, as it's taken in, becomes blood. Actual, literal, Jesus, blood. That's transubstantiation. It's an interesting concept. Of course, Luther came along in the Reformation, and he came up with what was called consubstantiation. Slightly different. That Christ was present, uh, literally present with the elements, with the bread, with the wine, but, but the bread and the wine didn't actually become. So he wasn't in them, he was just with them. So Luther taught, as you, as you took these in, that you were in a spiritual Way taking Christ in, in that moment. That's consubstantiation. John Calvin comes along and he went for more of a spiritualization. He said, no, it, it, it's, it's symbolic. It's spiritually something that's taking place in the, in the taking of bread and wine. Zwingli and others came on after that and they said, no, it's all figurative. The wine and the bread is just a picture, a simple picture of flesh and blood. It's not actual flesh and blood. It is not that Jesus suddenly comes upon you when you take it. It's just, it's a, a, you know, a figurative picture. Now I was thinking about these this week, kind of going through one after the other, and I'm not even going to tell you where I stand on it. You know why? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. If you claim Christ Jesus as Lord and I do, you're my brother, my sister in Christ and we share in communion and you think it's supernaturally becoming the body and blood of Jesus, okay. I don't have an issue with that. I mean, we'll know. We'll find out, won't we? Mm -hmm. If it's simply figurative and it just reminds you, it doesn't, that doesn't make a difference. That's putting too much emphasis, I believe, on the elements. The emphasis is this. What do they represent? What are they about? What's the point of this whole table of the Lord in the first place? So draw back. Jesus, on that night, He gave a simple meal. Gathered them around the table. It was called a triclinium. Some of you Bible students remember that. A triangular table, and they would sit on the three sides. The table of the Lord. And they gathered around and in the Passover meal He shifted the whole meaning and He invited them to take in who He is and what He was doing. That's communion. And that's the larger point. As Isaiah prophesied, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on Him. And by his scourging we are healed. Let me give it to you this way, and I love how Spurgeon says this. Charles Spurgeon said, never mind the bread and the cup, unless, unless you can use them as folks use glasses, like eyeglasses. What do they use eyeglasses for, he says, to look at? No, to look through use the bread and the wine as a pair of glasses look through them and do not be satisfied till you can say yes, yes I can see the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world what a beautiful picture look through the bread look through the juice and remember Jesus the elements are to draw out of our memory of Him what He did and what He's doing what He's doing among us all. It's also about what He's about to do. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Remember, He's coming back. He is coming back. That is part of the whole deal. And Job understood this. In the first book, I believe Job was probably the first book written in the Scriptures around the time of Abraham. And and Job said, Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Right on, Job. You're absolutely right. At the last, He will take His stand. Jesus is coming back. He said He would. John 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will also come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. And I think that that's, with that, Jesus was hinting at, at something else when He said, Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. The table of the Lord about what He did, about what He's doing, about what He is about to do. I'm going to join this feast with you. We're going to drink the wine together. It's going to be a glorious feast. Can you even imagine that first feast with Jesus? That's going to be awesome. And I'll tell you what, no one's going to leave the table early on that day. I don't care if there's a game on. Now Paul gets deadly serious. Watch this, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, Paul says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep or are dead. Think this is serious? Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Wow! I mean, that passage alone has brought more fear of God into the hearts of so many people showing up on a Sunday and, and, and saying man I, I can't take communion today I, I can't share in the Lord's table people who will who will let the, the cup let the bread pass them by because well the only way I can take it is if my week has been relatively sin free if I've had a pretty good week I'm good to go but if it's been an ugly, sinful, rebellious week. I I, I can't take the Lord's Supper. I, I have to stop right there. My friends, if that's the case, how could any of us ever take communion? If we could only take it when we are worthy to take it, we would never. We'd stop right now. We wouldn't have it again. I mean, show of hands, how many of you this morning feel like your week was pristine enough, good enough, Worthy enough that you can take communion. I mean, you're you're worthy to do it. Anyone? Show of hands. Come on. Yeah, because you know if you raise your hand, you're gonna add lying to the rest of the sin. (laughs) We are all sinners. We are all unworthy, but listen, unworthy who have been made worthy by the blood of Jesus, not by ourselves. And so when we come to the table, it has nothing to do with whether or not you are worthy. Yeah, but but Paul says this. Listen, I'll get back to that. But we all need grace. We come to the table by the grace and the blood of Jesus, by what He did to make us worthy. I love this story. John Duncan was a 19th century Scottish missionary to the Jews in Budapest had a very successful, uh, short-term, but very successful outreach to Jewish people in Budapest back then. After that, he came back to Edinburgh, Scotland. One Sunday morning, he is part of the group of of people serving out communion in the fellowship, and a 16-year-old girl in Duncan's church put up her hand to refuse communion. She said, I cannot take it. I'm not worthy. Duncan tapped her on the shoulder, pressed the cup into her hand, and said, Take it, lassie. It's for sinners. I tell you what, if you've had a messed up, sinful week, you need to share in communion. You need to come and take it. It is for sinners. It is a reminder of the grace and forgiveness and salvation that comes by Jesus. So if you don't feel worthy, welcome to the Koinonia. Welcome to the fellowship of unworthy people who are invited to the table of the Lord every single time we gather. Jesus makes us worthy. Yeah, but but Paul says, notice what Paul says. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That's completely different. He doesn't say whoever's unworthy and tries to take of the cup of the Lord... (laughs) Whoever takes in an unworthy manner, if you want to take it in a worthy manner, pay attention to, number three, the body at the banquet. The body at the banquet. When the table's in turmoil, we need a Redeemer in remembrance and we need to consider the body at the banquet. What body are you talking about? The body of Christ. Paul uses the word judge. He who eats and drinks, verse 29, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge. Diacrino is the word. It means to discern, to consider, or yes, to judge if we don't judge the body rightly. If I show up here and I'm looking down my nose at the body, I'm judgmental toward the body. I'm in contention with someone in the body. I say, I'll take it at that table, but if that jerk is at that table, i got to be over here because I can't even be in the same place. And you take communion with that attitude toward the body, you are taking it in an unworthy manner. Mm -hmm. We have to rightly discern, consider the body of Christ. And the body of Christ begins, brothers and sisters in Christ, with you. Self-examination. Paul says, let a man examine himself. That's where you start. Where's my heart at with the Lord? And specifically, where am I with the body this morning? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? Am I have issues with brothers and sisters and how this church does this stuff? But I'm here. I'm going to show them who's righteous. <laughs> You have issue with the body? Start right here. Self-examination. Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. I think he's right. Self-examination. But it's not about navel-gazing and beating up on yourself. That's not self-examination. Some have done that. They'll show up on a Sunday morning and they sit and they weep and they rock and they moan and they say, oh, I'm so filthy and terrible and horrible. Oh, woe is me. And they think that's self-examination. My friend, self-examination is recognizing your deep need for the grace of the Lord and confessing that to the body. Wouldn't that be weird if some Sunday morning I stood up here (laughs) and I said, hey, I'm not going to preach today. What we're going to do is we set up the mic and we're just going to go through and each one of us take our turn and confess our sins of the week. I mean, even in saying that, I hear a little rumble. Well, you know, I I have that thing, that appointment, I can't stay. for. Can I ask you why that would be an issue? If we all know we're sinners, if we all know it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ we are saved, why couldn't we stand up and in the mic say, this is where I failed this week. Please pray for me. Please help me. Would you support me? No, I'm not suggesting we do that today but there is something marvelous about confession about being open and honest before our God and before the body our brothers and sisters in Christ John wrote in first John 1 7 if we walk in the light that just means openly and honestly if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have what anyone know we have fellowship one with another And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light. If we're just open and honest and share with each other and and know that we all need each other and we especially need the Lord. And so we examine the body rightly. If you belong to Jesus, you cannot examine yourself apart from the body because you are part of the body. Not just this fellowship, but the larger body of Christ. And so John also says in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Sometimes during communion, I'll tell you all this, I look at you. I know it's weird. But I'll sit over there now now that I'm not up doing worship. When I was up doing worship, there were times where I would kind of peek out the door just to kind of see what's going on. you know I'll tell you why I do it. I love to see where the body is when we're sharing in communion. And I wonder, what is, what is he thinking right now? What is she thinking? What's Jesus saying to her in this moment? how is the body connecting with the Lord right now? And so I'll just kind of look around. That's okay, you can do that. You can rightly consider the entire body. To judge the body rightly means that I discern the body of Christ and it's you. And it's you. Think about Paul's passionate love for Jesus. How many of you right now this morning would say, I love Jesus. Show of hands, this is an easy one. I love Jesus. Do you feel the same way about His body? When you think about your love for Jesus, can you look across the room and say, every single one of you, I feel the same way about you, that I feel about Him. I love you. Or is it more like, yes, yes, oh, yes, yes, oh, yeah, yeah. If we love the Lord, we must love each other. It's part of the deal, because we are together the body of Christ. Several years ago, I was judging the body, and not rightly. I remember sitting in a church in Fairfax, Virginia. There was a youth pastor there at the time, and and I was getting to a point, and God corrected me big time on this, but I was getting to a point where I was pretty judgmental of this particular fellowship. It was the church that I was raised in. And I was starting to see things where I differed from what the Bible, from what they were teaching, and what I thought the Bible taught, and and I was starting to, it was really bugging me. And sitting there in communion one morning, and I was looking around. There's the table. Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm like, they're not remembering him. What's the matter with these people? You know, and we sang an old dusty hymn a cappella. I mean, what's what's wrong here? You know, I was in a bad place. Youth pastor. I mean, great. And I'm looking around, and all of a sudden I caught eyes, I saw a woman, I think in her late 80s, and she had tears running down her face. And I realized that I was completely missing what judging the body was all about. I had judged wrong. She was, in that moment, deeply touched by what Jesus did on the cross. And as I looked at her, I mean, it was a shattering moment. And I can tell you this, from that day forward, there has never been a single time when we share communion or I take communion any other place that I don't thank God for His body. That I am not so appreciative of the body of Christ and how much He loved us and called us to love one another. And see, at Corinth, they were not only being frivolous with how they took communion, but they were denying the body. They were hurting each other to the point Paul says in verse 30 that some were sick and weak and dead. I mean that is serious business. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> were people really like dying because they weren't taking communion, right? Possibly. And yes, some believed this was a supernatural thing going on. It wouldn't be the first time in the first century church, would it? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5, if you haven't read that story, check it out. It will freak you out. They just lied about what their offering was and dropped dead, both of them. So it is entirely possible that because there was such an abuse taking place at Corinth, that yeah, people were dying, people were weakened because of it, people were getting sick because of it. If that was the case though, and get this, if there was a supernatural judgment going on in that moment... Well, at least it wasn't eternal. What do you mean? Verse 32, he says, When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Oh, you may die in a supernatural judgment. (laughs) You may be sick or weak because of your disdain of the table of the Lord, but you are still saved eternally. The discipline was temporal. Which kind of makes me wonder about Ananias and Sapphira. If perhaps, perhaps we may yet see them in heaven, though they died, yet perhaps they are saved. And it wouldn't surprise me because the grace of God is huge for all of us. Well, a loss of strength, health, and in some cases, life itself, Was it supernatural? Possibly was. But, it may have been something else, and I just want to throw this one out to you. What's interesting to me is Paul doesn't say who was weak and sick and dying. He doesn't say, it's it's you jerks, it's the wealthy ones who are cutting out the more poor. You guys, you know why you're sick, you know why you're weak and dying, it's because of the way you're treating them. He doesn't say that. And it is possible, follow me on this, That some who were weak and sick and dying were the poor among them who were being neglected by their own church. By their own brothers and sisters. Because of your treatment of one another, some are dying. Do you understand that? And some are weak. They're not even getting enough to eat while you feast and sup with all the rich and wealthy people. Some are sick. And you don't care because you were being so selfish at the table of the Lord. Either way, whether it was a supernatural judgment or or people were actually not being cared for in the body, the entire community was affected by the actions of a few. And that's always the way it is in church. You realize when you enter the body of Christ, when you become a Christian... You are no longer all on your own in your behavior. What you do affects everybody. Oh no, it doesn't. I, I, you know, I'm good with God. You know, I got my problems over here, but it's just me and the Lord. And and, wait, don't think for a moment that you sin like in a cocoon or in a vacuum, and, and it doesn't affect other people. The truth is, where the body of Christ is concerned, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Why? Because we are a body. Smash your finger and what do your feet do? They run you to the closest place where you can get help. Because your feet are affected by this pain. If one hurts in the body, if one is weak, if one is sick, if one is dying, the whole body, the whole body is affected. Remember what I said. The centerpiece of the Lord's Supper is about what Jesus did. It's about what He is going to do. And it's about what He's doing right now, right here, in this fellowship. In the body of Christ. He is at work. What's He doing? He's bringing a people together. You know, one of the things I love when I look around at communion and look at all the different... Ages and and social status and places of life and, and interests and affinities and how truly different we all are in this sanctuary. And yet we're all here. We're all in the same place because of the same Lord. And when we take the bread and we take the, the juice together, we're recognizing that. We're one body. As different and desperate as, as we might be in our lives, we're one body run together by Jesus that's something he's doing he is making a koinonia a fellowship of people who otherwise wouldn't be I remember Penelope and I had a conversation about this years ago sorry to call you out sister but just about family how it's so interesting that in the church sometimes our brothers and sisters at church are closer even than our physical flesh brothers and sisters that's what Jesus is doing here gang it's awesome He's making a body. And John wrote in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, Paul finishes out verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, he says, wait for one another. Don't rush ahead to the front of the line. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. He's saying, put the emphasis back where it belongs. And then he says, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So apparently there were some other issues and problems that he was just going to deal with in person. Paul's coming, man. Storm's coming. (laughs) But I remind you again, five times in this passage, he says, when you come together to eat... They were out on the Sea of Galilee. My favorite of of the Gospel stories. Peter didn't know what to do with himself. It was after the resurrection of Jesus. So he said, I'm going fishing. And some of the bros went with him as well. Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John. A couple of others. And they're out there fishing. They fished all night long. And as tends to be par for the course for Peter, he hadn't caught a single thing. And they look and there's a guy on the shore. And the guy says, hey... Cast the net on the right side of the boat. Any of you fishermen think that you're going to catch more fish on the right side than on the left side? I mean, are conservative fish easier to catch? (laughs) weird thing they're out there in this little 12 man boat and he says throw it over on the other side oh, okay I've just been fishing all night but whatever and they throw it over 153 fish were caught and they they begin to drag it in and and John calls out it's the Lord and of course Forrest jumps right into the water and begins I, I mean Peter jumps into the water and begins swimming for shore and they pull in those fish and they row in and I'm, I'm certain they arrived at the same time on the shore. Peter comes dripping wet out of the water. The boat slides against the sand. What does Jesus say? Come have breakfast. They look on the fire behind Jesus and there's already fish frying and there's already fresh baked bread ready to be eaten. And Jesus says, oh and hey, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Why? He's planning on being there a while. Because Jesus loved to eat, loved to fellowship with His friends, with His followers, and He will again at a feast we know of as the marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19, read it, it's awesome. It is the next big feast. It's the one Jesus said, I'm not going to drink any wine until I do it with you anew in the kingdom with my Father. Marriage Feast of the Lamb, I believe, is the first of what will be many feasts going on right into eternity. In Luke 12.36, Jesus said, Be like men who are waiting for their Master when He returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open to Him when He comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves who the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself and He will have them recline at the table and He will come up and wait on them. Can you imagine? Jesus tapping you on the shoulder and saying, Hey, can I give you a refill? Hey, did you get enough bread over there? You guys down to this end, are you still hungry? Because we can... Can we get some more over here? And Jesus serving because you see, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And such is the love of Christ. We're going to take communion together now. You are invited to come to the table of the Lord this morning. We have four tables in all four corners. We're going to worship together a couple of songs. When you're ready to take communion, You can just go up and take it. You can take it in in small groups. You can pray together there. You can get it, take it back to your seats, however you want to do it. At the same time, and listen to me, because this is a few things to remember. While we share in communion, this is also a time of confession. It's also a time of ministry. We've got people that will be at all four tables. I'll be right up here in front. If you just need to pray... If you feel like something is is, is off-kilter in your life and you want to examine yourself before the Lord, you want to pray, even before you take communion, you can do that. If you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time today, become a Christian. Come forward and talk to me and let's pray together. And let's receive Jesus into ourselves and into this place.